Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with five-time World Series champion Paul O'Neill. 3-2 to O'Neill. Well hit to right field. This one is headed for the bleachers. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we welcome a true Yankee legend. He's a five-time All-Star, five-time World Series champ, and he mixed a batting title in in 1994. He's currently a baseball analyst for the Yes Network, and he covers the Yankees on a daily basis. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Paul O'Neill. Paulie, thanks for coming on the show. How are you, man? It's been a while. It's been a while. I listen to you a lot, though. You know, I, I got to check in with you guys. I got I got family interests now. You know, I'm not a Yankee guy, but I'm kind of forced to. Well, I hate to tell you, though, over the years of my broadcasting, I have dropped a Brett Boone managing before. It just it happens once in a while. You know, when your brother's over there managing, <laughs> once in a while, I get carried away and throw bread at him. So, you know what? It's uh, It's been frustrating so far this year for the Yankees up and down. But, uh, you know, your brother has done a great job, and uh, he's got a lot, lot in his plate right now. All right. Old Yankee Stadium or new? Well, you know, if between you and me, the old Yankee Stadium was hard to beat. I mean, the history involved and just the feeling of that stadium, uh, I don't know if you can replicate that. I mean, the new stadium is beautiful. It's so much bigger and vast. But, um, you know, to be able to walk down the same tunnels that Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and all those goes, uh, you know, you, you just you, you can't. Um, you can't bring that to a new stadium. Uh, and like I said, the new stadium is great, but the old stadium to me is where all my memories are too. Yeah, I went back uh, for those out there listening. It's and especially the the players of today that didn't get a chance to play in that old Yankee Stadium. I I came back uh, right. Th- I think it was probably three years ago uh, to one of the playoff games. It was my first time at New Yankee Stadium, and I was kind of interested to see what it was about. And I was walking through the tum- tunnel where the players leave, and and I actually ran into some some guys that have been, you know, they worked in the old stadium when when we were playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was just kind of looking around. It didn't have that feeling, like you said. It's brand new. It, it was state. It's state of the art. But there's something about that old Yankee Stadium, and I tell people all the time. I, I got. You know, I got a chance to play there quite a bit, and I, I got to play a couple postseasons there. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the few times, you know, how we go out on the line before the game. And, you know, that's pretty common. Maybe not these days, but back then, 15, 20 minutes before the game, we're running our sprints. And I remember it was game three. I think it was 1999 I was with the Braves, and I'd played in Yankee Stadium quite a bit. But that night – I, it wasn't an anxiety attack, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I, I got off off, you know, I, I ran a few sprints and I came back and I was just kind of looking around and I, for the first time I realized I'm somewhere special right now. And I played mm-hmm. a million games and I had to go down and kind of calm myself down before game three. But, but it, it wasn't a bad feeling. It was a really cool feeling that that you know you're in a special place because you just don't get get feelings like that. And you know you hear the you hear the the legendary the ghosts will come out. 
You know, I think when when uh, my brother Aaron came over and played for the Yankees briefly, that was reiterated to him quite a bit. And believe me, in a couple postseasons, I saw those ghosts if there are ghosts. But what a place. What a place. Yeah, there was nothing like the atmosphere of the the playoff games and the World Series and that run. I mean, it just uh, yeah, it kind of hit me when I was first traded over there in in 1992. You know, going to spring training with the Yankees and you know Whitey Ford's there and Yogi Bear's there and Reggie Jackson and it just it went on and on and it just uh, you know there the legends that go along with uh, being a New York Yankee and and just the you know, the feeling that it, it uh, you know, you win and it, you win or you, you, you were a failure. And I don't know that a lot of cities and a lot of teams feel that way, but from day one, when I was over there, uh, that, that, that was a feeling. And, um, you know, that's the culture. Uh, it still is to this day. And it's, uh, you know, it's been a dry spell since they won a world series. Paul O'Neill, Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> I want to hear about your childhood. Well, you know what? I was born in Columbus and uh, four older brothers and an older sister. Um, uh, my father was an ex-athlete, uh, lost his baseball career after he had played, uh, going to the service. By the time he went back, you know, he was done. But he was my little league coach. Uh, I mean, we were we were a sports family, a Midwestern sports family. That's uh, depending on what season it was. That's what we were doing in the in the backyard. And, you know, being the youngest of six kids, uh, you know, I was always trying to play up where I could compete and be in the game. So, you know, it, uh, so probably you're 15, 16 years old, you're always the worst guy out on the field when you're playing against your older brothers. So, uh, you know, a lot of crying, a lot of cheating, a lot of fighting, <laughs> a lot of things that go along with boys playing in the backyard, but uh, great memories. And um, then it turned into, you know, almost a storybook uh, situation for me where I was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds, which was basically your hometown team when you grew up in Ohio, because, you know, you grow up in the 70s uh, with the big red machine. Uh, and then going on to Cincinnati, it was, like I said, a dream come true. And then, um, uh, you know, it just my, my brothers all played in college. My brothers, my sister was a writer. So it's just, uh, you know, our family was basically built around sports. That's what my father knew. And uh, that's that's what we did. And that's a cool story. You grew up a Reds fan. Uh, it, it is. It's storybook. There's not too many people that get to live that out. You know, I grew up in in Jersey, just over the bridge from Philly, and it would have been similar if I got drafted by the Phillies and and played for the Phillies instead of uh, being a Mariner. Ended up working out for me all right. But you know, we had mm -hmm. Jimmy Edmonds. We had Jimmy Ed Edmonds on the program a few weeks back, and he grew up in in uh, Southern Cal up in Orange County right. and he's, you know, 10 miles away from, from Angel Stadium. And he was talking about it as a kid. He said, you know, I, I just used to come to the big A and if I, if I could get to within, you know, 40 feet of my heroes it, and he talks about it, you know, fast forward, he gets drafted and, and signs with the angels. And um, it, it's gotta be a pretty awesome thing growing up there. And then, and then, uh, you know, seeing your, it becomes a reality. Now all of a sudden you're a Cincinnati Red. You went to Brookhaven High, uh, 81. You're drafted in the fourth round uh, by the Reds. Was there in consideration for you to go on and play college baseball or, or were you pretty much set on, you know, if I get picked in the right spot, I'm going to sign? 
Well, I mean, my dream, I, I grew up as a kid dreaming about playing in the major leagues. I wasn't like um, a lot of guys now that are, you know, just athletes and become baseball players. That's what my dream was. But, uh, you know, my mom had, uh, you know, put her foot down and said, you know, you're you're going to go to college. And my father obviously wanted me uh, to be drafted. And uh, interesting story, as when I was drafted, I was actually on a college visit and had signed a letter of intent to go to the University of South Florida because Robin Roberts, Hall of Fame pitcher from Philadelphia, was the coach there at the time. So uh, I actually was at his house when I was drafted. And I'll never forget to this day, he said, you know, kid, if you want to go play professional baseball, go ahead and go play. And it was like the best advice in the world to me. So I kind of like you know, talk this over with my mom and dad. And, and that's the way it ended. And my mom promised, I promised my mom that I would go to college in the off seasons until I made it to the major leagues. And, uh, you know, when that happened, that was the end of my college days, boy, I had, had fulfilled a dream and, you know, it, it was just a start, but still it's, uh, uh, till this day, I'll, I'll never forget Robin Roberts and the advice he gave me. And, you know, he could have said, Hey, you need to come to college this or that, but he didn't. He knew that I wanted to go play professional baseball, and uh, that was my decision at the time. Walk me through a little bit of that minor league experience. You go from, an, you know, you're an 18-year-old kid c- coming out of high school. Now you're, now you're thrust into uh, professional baseball, and, and that can be quite an adjustment for a lot of people, especially at 18. You know, coming out of college, mm-hmm. the, junior dra- the junior year draft coming out of college uh, – being 21, you, you have a chance to grow up a little bit and mature a little bit. Mm-hmm. But 18, you're, you're kind of thrown to the wolves. It's not that that 25-game high school schedule. You know, all of a sudden, you're facing 22-year-old men that have been at this for a while. And all of a sudden, you're expected to play 142 games. Take me into that a little bit and, and how that adjustment was for you at that age. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, looking back, obviously the toughest part of um, the whole baseball experience is, you know, leaving a couple of days after graduation, you know, all your friends are just doing what they want to do in life, having a blast. And, you know, I'm on a plane to Billings, Montana uh, to work out and to get ready for a season and then, you know, bus trips of 15, 16 hours and, you know, you $10 a day meal money and just, you know, it's a wake up call. And it, it, it's, it's a grueling season when you're not used to that. And, uh, you know, you're right. The, the first time you go uh, as an 18 year old, you know, you're used to coming out of high school where, you know, you lead the team in hitting and you lead the team in pitching and the, and all of a sudden you're playing against guys that uh, are as good or better than you because of the age difference and the maturity of a lot of the college players. And it it certainly is a wake-up call. And the minor leagues, uh, I don't know that um, they're like they were back then now. Uh, I think some things have improved, but uh, it's a tough thing. I mean, you're you're not guaranteed anything. Um, You you have to play every single day under – you know, not great conditions. And you know, as well as I do, Brad, I mean, bus trips and, and things like that are, are not glamorous at all. So uh, uh, when I look back at my career, uh, you know, minor leagues obviously was the toughest part of it. Yeah, and I, and I, uh, I've got a son just starting off his first professional season and it is different for the kids today. You know, his first thing was, yeah, dad, we don't even have host families and you know, we're making this. And, and I try to tell him a little bit of my story. As I signed it, I, I get shipped. I'm at U, USC and, you know, big, glamorous uh, 
you know, college program I'm coming from. And, and they sent me to Peninsula, Virginia, to the Carolina League for my short season. And I pull up to the stadium and I kind of look at the driver and go, you're kidding, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they, you know, they shuffled me into this little little clubhouse, which at the time is is equal to probably a you know a tractor on wheels. And I'm looking, mm-hmm. you know, first thing I'm looking, I grew up, you know, it, it, basically I grew up as a big league kid, you know, a brat of a big leaguer. So after my first game, I'm I'm looking around and I said, uh, "Hey, where's the spread?" Yeah, and they exactly. looked at, you know, people look at me and go, what are you talking about, big guy? Spread? And I remember yeah. a guy that worked in the park there, went outside, and he was kind of, you know, the, those guys in the minor leagues, they, they got a lot of hats, certain guys in, in position. He was running ticketing. And he also ran the concession. So he, he was one of those guys. His name was Tiny. And he comes mm-hmm. back into, the, into the, our little locker room, and he throws about 10 or 15 hot dogs that hadn't been sold that right. night and he said hey he looked at me he goes hey big ligger he goes there's your spread and he walks out <laughs> you know that was kind of my first reality like whoa okay and and you got guys down there struggling and you know some guys had signed for for a plane ticket and and all of a sudden it's kind of on the line is either play good or you go get a real job here and uh it was a little bit of a wake-up call to me but but i loved that at that time because i was just mm-hmm. i'm here to get to there to get to the big leagues that's what i want to do but uh it's it's quite a quite an experience and and uh, you know after your career and you could look back on it those minor league times they they kind of i don't know i i think it taught you a lot it it, ta- it taught you to appreciate the great times ahead um, mm-hmm. because we're, when we're in the minor leagues, I don't know if this was the case for you. Uh, I don't even remember struggling down there. Like it wasn't a big deal. It's, it was baseball every day and I, I was loving it because it, it, I was fulfilling my dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, I look at it that way. There was nothing else I wanted to do. And, and believe me, that carrot was always in front of you of, you know, in a ball to get to double a to triple a and then finally to take that step into the major leagues but you know there are times where i don't care who you are that uh, you know you have a bad week a bad month you start doubting you know is this the right thing and you know it, it just you can't you got to block that out because you know if you know the percentages and stuff like that it's just like if you have this dream you don't want it to be taken away because you don't play up to your capability. And, you know, I, I, I always talk to my mom and dad, you know, weekly, you know, back then you had to call collect because you have any money and stuff like that. No right. cell phones. <laughs> so you'd call collect and let them know how you did that week and things like that. But uh, I mean, there were a lot of good times too. And, you know, you, you still to this day, once in a while, will hear somebody that you played a ball with or double a with, but uh, most of your friends, uh, I, I'm sure it's in the same case for you. Most of the friends you have now out of baseball are guys you played with in the major league. So uh, very seldom do you really even hear about the guys that, uh, you know, you spent, you know, every day of your life with for a summer uh, playing minor league baseball. Yep. All right. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. 85 is your debut. Uh, you called up with the Reds. I think it was a brief debut. And then 86 and 87, uh, you know, when I was looking back at Paul O'Neill's career, you were kind of on the shuttle. And what the shuttle is, for, for, for those of you out there listening to the podcast, uh, you don't know whether you're coming or going. You know, I was on the shuttle in, in 92 and 93. 
And at any time, you know, you get that tap on the shoulder, Skip wants to see you're going back down, you're coming back up. How was that for you uh, after debuting in 85? Cause, because you don't become an everyday player until 88. How was it through those, those couple years of, of going back and forth from the minor leagues to the big leagues? Well, 85 was such a, you know, just that's the experience. The first time that you're called to the major leagues. And it just so happened that 1985 and the Cincinnati Reds, Pete Rose was the manager. And then I got called up like two weeks before he broke Ty Cobb's record. So, you know, it's one of the fond memories I have of being called up other than the excitement of calling your mom and dad and say, Hey, I've been called up to the major leagues. Um, uh, I remember being called up that night and the Reds were actually in a pennant race. So, you know, Pete Rose called me in his office. Congratulations. You had a great year in AAA. Um, uh, you're, you're probably not going to play much, um, you know, sit, learn, watch. And it just so happened that night that we went into extra innings and I, I pinch hit the first night I was in the major leagues. And I was so nervous. I swung at the first pitch and, lined it into right center field, which should have been a double and ended up being a single because my legs wouldn't work. So it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a, it was unbelievable memories for me. And then I didn't play for a while. 1986, it just so happened that Dave Parker was the right field, right fielder. And he played every single day. And I came up with a group of outfielders with the Cincinnati Reds. It was Eric Davis, myself, Cal Daniels, and Tracy Jones, that were all, you know, trying to make the major league team. And Eric Davis, uh, I'm sure you remember at the time, you know, he became one of the best players in the game in the National League. So uh, he had a, a spot. Uh, Dave Parker was playing every single day. So there was really no room. So in 1986, you know, I made the team, got a, an at-bat, had no playing time. They call you in, hey, we, have, we don't have room for you. You're going down. And then I ended up diving for a ball in AAA and, you know, breaking my thumb. So I was, I was out for the rest of the year. 87, kind of the same thing with, with Cal Daniels, Tracy Jones, and Eric Davis. We were kind of vying for time. Uh, and then by the end of that year, um, you know, I, I got to be an everyday player because Tracy Jones got hurt. Pete Rose said, you know, right field is your job. And, and from then um, – you know, I, I expected to play and I got the opportunity to play. Yeah. And, and like you said, 88 uh, is when you start to, to be the right fielder. Uh, I want to, I want to push ahead a little bit to the 90 the year we had Lark on, you know, I had Boogie on uh, mm-hmm. recently. We had Norman and, and, and Dibble on, you know, we did, <laughs> we did that nasty boy right. podcast, but that was quite a year. You know, I remember uh, that was my draft year, and I remember watching that World Series, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, nobody gave the Reds a chance, and, and all you did is go wire to wire. They didn't even win a game in, in that World Series. But talk to me a little bit about that year, how special it was. I want I want you to touch on Boogie a little bit more because I, I think for the people, you know, he had an injury-ridden, I played with Eric uh, when he was kind of a part-time player and, and worked mm-hmm. his way into being a full-time player in the, in the mid-90s for the Reds. But what a special player he was. And I know you've been quoted a few times. Uh, you had feelings at the time of how good a player Eric Davis was. He was doing things that – ridiculous stuff. I mean, hitting 30 home runs and stealing 70 bases. I mean, people mm-hmm. just don't do that anymore. And and as I got older in the game and, and – and got more years under my belt. I really appreciated the the power guys that also were stealing bases because it's a tough thing to do. But touch on Boogie a little bit. 
Well, I, I, I remember, and I've said it numerous times, I mean, we went to the playoffs in 1990. I had played all the way through the minor leagues with Eric. We played A-ball, double-A, triple-A together, and Eric always stood out because he was a phenomenal athlete. He was so you know, thin and fast, but he was a tremendous center fielder. And as you said, you know, stole bases, but all of a sudden this guy starts hitting 30, 40 home runs. And it's just like, he's a different type of player. And by the time we got to the playoffs in 1990 against the Pittsburgh pirates, you would look out on that field and you had Barry Bonds with the pirates and you had Eric Davis with the reds. And in my mind, they, they were the best two players in the national league. And uh, bar none, it's just the way it was. And like I said, I had spent my whole minor league career with Eric. And, um, you know, injuries did kind of shorten things and, and make him a part-time player. But uh, I, I remember in, in he, he hit the wall in Wrigley Field one time. He had a chance to, I think, hit 40 home runs and steal 80 bases. I mean, these were numbers that were just crazy. And um, uh, I hope people don't forget really how good a baseball player he was. Barry Larkin. Uh, he was my double play combination for, for five or six years. Uh, great memory. And, and the thing about Barry is I think Barry learned a lot from Eric because a lot of, a lot of the, the stuff Barry would talk about was, you know, he, he kind of, Eric kind of took Barry under his wing. And then Barry, when I came over to Cincinnati, he had that, you know, he talked about it all the time. And, and I watched a lot of, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, of Eric Davis in Barry Larkin from an athletic standpoint the, you know, that, that innate ability to almost a Ricky Henderson type, maybe not to that level. But to, to steal that big bag when everybody in the state, when 50,000 fans, both dugouts, both coaching staffs, pitcher, catcher, they all know he's going and he'll steal it right in your face. And he's safe mm-hmm. every time. It's a difference maker. And, and I think Barry brought that uh, to the Reds when, when Eric ended up leaving. Uh, you also a good buddy of yours, and I hear the stories, Paul. <laughs> you know, we got a lot of mutual friends. We haven't talked much. We played against each other quite a bit, but I hear the Sabo stories, whether it's from Norm, uh, Norm Charlton, or Dibs, or or Hal Morris. They said, "Yeah, Booney, you should have seen when when Paulie and Sabo got together." Talk a little bit about your buddy uh, Chris Sabo. Well, I still talk to to Spuds, and uh, you know he popped onto the scene and, uh, you know, rookie of the year, made the all-star team, uh, just a tough from Detroit, Michigan, just a tough nose, hard nose player. And, uh, Cincinnati loved him. He wore the rec specs and drove his beat up escort to the ballpark. It was just a story in itself, but, uh, really, really good, uh, third baseman defensively. Uh, my best friend, I played with him again, through double a triple a, uh, but when he came to the major leagues, I mean, he, he came ready to play. He had played at Michigan, so he was kind of seasoned uh, a little more so than a high school player. But uh, I always respected the way Spuds played. I mean, he was a tough kid. And um, uh, if you look at the World Series in 1990, uh, we would have never won that World Series. He was, uh, in my mind, they gave it to Jose Rio, but he was, in my mind, the MVP. I mean, he was hitting home runs. He was driving in runs. He was our offense, uh, he and Billy Hatcher, in, in the World Series. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, on paper, okay, we swept the Oakland A's 4 nothing. But if we didn't win game four, we were probably in trouble because Billy Hatcher had got hit. 
He was a huge part of our offense, got hit in the hand. He probably wouldn't have been able to play. Eric Davis lacerated a kidney diving for a ball, so he was probably out for the series. So we would have been minus a couple big players if we didn't win game four. And um, uh, I think Sabo, uh, you know, hit a home run that, that game even. And it's just uh, – uh, we were very fortunate, and you said that we didn't have a chance, and you know we didn't even know going in if we had a chance. I mean, Lou Pinella had come over from the Yankees with that that culture of winning from the Yankees, and you brought that in, and we got up to a great start. And, and if you look at the way uh, pitching staffs and bullpens are are kind of set up today, I look back at the that nasty boys. You talked about Charlton and Dibble and Myers. I look at that group of guys that kind of changed the way baseball's played. I mean, we would play those five innings, six inning games, and then get to the bullpen, and they uh, they would shut it down. Where, um, you know, in the old days, you'd love to get to the bullpen. I don't know if the guys this day and age want to get to the bullpen. Everybody throws a hundred. There's power pitchers out there. Uh, it is a different game. And the first time I look at when that really happened was back in 1990 with the Nasty Boys in Cincinnati. Yeah, I remember as a kid watching those, watching your teams and watching the 90 team. And I remember watching Rob Dibble as a right-handed hitter, watching Rob Dibble on, you know, SportsCenter. That, that's a big thing for the minor leaguers that we, we get home from our game watch SportsCenter. And I remember <laughs> looking at that TV and go, I will be happy if I never have to face that man. You know, fast forward years later, I, I you know, I played for the Reds and I played with Dibs. He was, he was out for the year, uh, but we mm-hmm. were teammates through spring training. And I remember talking to Hal Morris and Hal telling me, he said, Booney, for, for that period where Dibble was dominant, he said, I've never seen somebody uh, dominate hitters more than, than Rob Dibble did in that, in that, uh, time you know from the late 90s to the early uh, i'm sorry late 80s to the early 90s said i've never seen a more dominant uh guy come in for one inning uh over batters it it, it was amazing and i do agree at that time he had the best stuff in baseball i mean uh, i saw him in wrigley field one night andre dawson ryan sandberg i mean like nine pitches strike three 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 of the top hitters in the national league he was unhittable at times and uh, he was the first guy in my mind that was maybe nolan ryan that topped out around 100 but you know dibble was throwing close to 100 miles an hour with this wild motion and unbelievable control with his slider so uh, and you know, a chip on his shoulder too, a bit, a bit of craziness. So it was no fun at bat for anybody who had stepped in the batter's box. And you were talking about spuds. Tell me if this sounds like spuds. It, it, he comes back to, to the, uh, reds in the late. Yeah. I think it was 97. He was a part-time player with us. He'd pinch hit, you know, mm-hmm. might play once a week. We're the Astrodome. He gets asked to pinch hit. I think it's a close game. Hits a home run, bomb. It's fair. It gets called foul. It's the ninth inning now. And you remember the you remember the Astrodome? Had the netting was, down there for foul poles, right? Yeah. I remember so it's the Astrodome. I couldn't see the ball. So <laughs> right. He so he goes, he goes foul homer. It's called foul. It's fair. Ends up getting to, you know, he's three two count, pops it straight up. So he's out. He goes from tying the game with a homer popping up. You know the Astrodome, how we have to walk up from the dugout through all those crooked stairs and you're, you're avoiding cats yeah. on the way up. to. 
Or yeah. you can go, you know, during batting practice when there's no fans, you can walk right through the through the stadium, right up the – and it goes right into the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Spuds, during the game, makes the out, jumps over the fence, walks through the crowd to the clubhouse. <laughs> we finish the ninth <laughs> inning, end up losing the game. You know, we get our stuff. We head up that long trek up to the – his clothes are on the floor. I said, where's Saber? They said, he's gone. <laughs> he yeah. walked through the crowd in his uniform because he said, that yeah. ball's, you know, Booney, that ball's fair. That ball's fair. You know that, right? I said, yeah, I know it. <laughs> That's the type of guy yeah. he was. I mean, one of a kind, man. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's not the only stories with Spuds. I mean, he was uh... – like I said, he just uh, he did what he wanted to do. He was kind of in his own little world there. But, uh, you know, for a few years there with Cincinnati, he was a good, solid player and a, and a good third baseman. Okay, so after 92, you get traded to the Yankees. What's your initial thought? Because you come there as a baby, 81. Uh, you're there 10 or 11 years in Cincinnati, and all of a sudden you're going to put the pinstripes on. What what was your initial thought, of, uh, thought with that? Well, I, I mean, when you're – born and raised in Ohio, you, you feel, I mean, I was devastated at the time. I'm like, you know, how, how could this happen? And, you know, when you're traded in your mind as a player, or the way I felt was like, you know, if I was good enough, they, they wouldn't trade me. So it's kind of like a demotion, but, um, in hindsight, obviously it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I I went to, to New York at the time where they were just starting to add players and try to turn the team around. They hadn't won in a while. Uh, you know, I, I got the, the opportunity to, to play with Mattingly, uh, become unbelievably close friends with him, and see this team progress. So finally in 95, you know, we made the playoffs. And then 96, obviously, uh, we won a World Series. And then we had this kind of historic run where you, you know, you win four out of five years. And while you're going through it, you kind of take it for granted, I guess. But you look back now and see the way sports are that, you know, these, those type of things uh, don't happen all the time. And, you know, I, I always credit Mr. Steinbrenner for, you know, spending the money and, and keeping that team together for the most part. If we needed a player, it seemed like they pulled the trigger on the right person. Uh, it just, uh, it was just a, a perfect time uh, to be a New York Yankee. Yeah, and you mentioned Steinbrenner, and and you're coming from Cincinnati, where we had a pretty eccentric owner, and we we both did. Marge Schott, you know, she had her controversial side to her, without a doubt. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, baseball, and it doesn't have too many of them anymore. You know, since since George passed away, where you might he he might say some pretty harsh things. He's a pretty big critic. Mm-hmm. But I think those 25 guys in that clubhouse, knowing that the top dog, the owners got your back and he, he wants to win at all costs. As a player, I can handle that critique. Marge was, you know, she had her she had her things, you know, she's very cheap. She's making us turn in cracked bats to get new bats. But she'd always go get that player because she wanted to win at the end of the day. Man, as a player, I, I envied that about the New York Yankees. And I just said, and they said, oh, how would you play for George? I said, I'd love to play for George. He can say whatever he wants to say about me because I know in the end, all he wants to do is win. And and I think a lot of teams around baseball were, especially that time you guys were going through, that dominant, unbelievable, you know, 96 through 
2000. I think you had a lot of teams on the other side go, man, I wish our owner <laughs> would act and behave that way and, and give us the, the opportunity. I, I think it what made the Yankees, it's why the Yankees are the Yankees. I, I think he formulated that. We win at all costs. We win every year. We never rebuild. Uh, as a player, speak to that a little bit on, on having that, uh, ha- him having your back. What, what a difference that makes. Well, I just, I'd never, uh, you take it for granted that every owner wants to, to win. And it's not like that. It's a business. And a lot of owners are in it for a business. But uh, Mr. Seinbrenner was in it. And he always said that, you know, New York deserves a winner. And, uh, you know, he was, he kind of had a football mentality. He grew up in, in, in football. And, uh, you know, it was win at all costs. And, you know, if he had to say something in the paper or this to, to light a fire under somebody, he would. But, you know, he was uh, more than good to me. I uh, never complained. Uh, he was always, always doing what, um, you know, he needed to do as an owner to either put pressure on people to play better or bring people in to help us win. And, you know, he would he would take it from the fans and he would take it from the media. But at the end of the year, you know, when we were toasting another world championship, then, uh, you know, he, you realize how much and how passionate he was about winning. And, um, you know, to this day, uh, he, uh, he, he was the, the reason that why we won in New York. I mean, he put teams together and, uh, he expected a lot, but you know, why not? If you're owning a team and you're paying top dollar for players, you should expect players to play well. And, uh, you know, his kids, um, obviously still involved with the team, but, uh, I don't know if there'll be another George Steinbrenner, uh, as an owner, uh, obviously, what he did for the New York franchise is uh, unbelievable. So 93 to 98, you hit 300 six times in a row. 94 is magical year from, from a personal standpoint, you win a batting title. Uh, you know, I mentioned the 96 world series, 98, you win the world series, 99, you, you, you broke my heart when I was at the Braves. You, you swept us at 2000. Now you guys are just showing off. You know, I couldn't imagine going, you see all the players out there and, and uh, you know, some great players that never got that opportunity. And, and, and I looked at you guys, I'm like, wow, how cool is that? Uh, so it was, it was Paul O'Neill and it was Bernie Williams and it was uh, Mo and Pettit and Jeter and Posada. But one thing we talked about in those clubhouses before the game and those pregame meetings was something about O'Neill. He, he was kind of the X factor on those teams and don't let him beat you. So, you know, I want to give you a little bit of a, of a compliment that that's how your peers viewed you. Um, yeah. And, and I just thought I'd add that it, it was always Paul O'Neill, Paul O'Neill. It seemed to be a thorn in our side. You know, it's good to hear now. You you don't know what's going on in the meetings across the field. You know, we were having the same meetings. So, uh, you know, that is kind of cool to hear, and I appreciate that. But, you know, when you look back at those times, you know, Lou Pinella was your manager, and, you know, he still had Yankee ties. And, you know, so it became somewhat of a rivalry. And, uh, you know, you guys beat us in 95. We, got, we beat you in that magical year of 2001. Uh, you know, it was kind of up and down and Seattle was not a good place for us to play. The kingdom was horrible. We did somewhat better in Safeco, but, um, uh, you know, I never looked forward, um, to playing the, the Mariners, uh, you know, Brandy Johnson was on the pitching staff. Norm Charlton was in the bullpen, tough at bats for me. So, uh, it was never an easy task, um, you know, playing the Mariners. 
Joe Torrey, what comes to mind when I mention his name? Well, when you look back, he was just obviously, obviously just the perfect guy to come in and manage his team. I mean, we had lost in 95 and Buck Showalter had pretty much, you know, laid a lot of foundation down. Mattingly was stepping away from the game, but Joe Torrey came in and just was the perfect guy. I mean, he was a conservative manager. Don Zimmer was uh, the gambler next to him on the bench. Uh, everything was just perfect. And he understood I never under, I never, you, you take it for granted that, you know, he understood the, the length of the season and he would treat you the same, uh, you know, if you're 0 for 10 or 10 for 10. And, and a lot of managers don't do that because managers feel the pressure. And, and Joe Torrey was so good at, at keeping the media and everything away from us. Uh, you know, he would, he would spend the time. He would take the brunt of the argument where, you know, the players could worry about just playing. And uh, in New York, that's a big thing. So, uh, you know, I, I just look back at, at my time with uh, Mr. Torrey and just, um, you know, realize how lucky I was to be part of those teams. And he always said the same thing. And I think that was one of the cooler things. You know, he was the right place at the right time, but uh, you couldn't have had a better guy be your manager. Uh, New York's famous for being a pressure cooker from, from a media standpoint. Now you're a part of the media. Uh, How do you handle that? How is that different than say Cincinnati for you in the earlier days being part of the media? Now, do you almost feel pressure broadcasting the games? Like, Whoa, these guys better win, you know, Uh, just talk about New York and and that whole media concept versus pretty much everywhere else in, in major league baseball. Yeah, I mean, it's there. There is pressure to win, and there is uh, pressure to, you know, do well and uh, to to live up to who you're supposed to be as a player. But I always found that the New York media, if you don't make excuses, uh, they're they're pretty good. Uh, you start trying to make excuses and try to dodge things, uh, they'll roast you, and it it is what it is. And you know, as far as doing games, um, I always promised myself that I would never, you know, be that guy that you know, would say, you know, this got to be done. This guy's got to be doing, you just don't realize how fast that game happens out on the field and how easy it looks on television. And, you know, it's a hard game. Um, obviously the first couple of years, when you get into broadcasting, you're very in your mind, very critical because you feel like, you know, you could still basically go out and do this where, you know, I'm so far from the game now that you look out and, and almost, you know, like a fan, just admire the talents that some of these guys have. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed my time with the, with the yes broadcasting team. And uh, still, uh, we're going through a tough time right now. And, and the media is, is on the players. So uh, I'm sure that uh, your brother <laughs> is, is <laughs> Many, many days uh, on, uh, on uh, you know, talking to the media and he is so good at, uh, you know, staying positive and trying to uh, believe in his players. But, you know, there's some, some issues right now where, you know, it keeps rearing its ugly head. They're not scoring runs. And, you know, you've got to score runs uh, to win baseball games. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to Aaron and I'll say, so you want to be the skipper of the New York Yankees? <laughs> there's a lot of perks that comes with it but there's a lot of questions to be answered and, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. And yeah, I'm proud of Aaron. I think he's done a really good job. want to touch real quick on uh, we had Tino Martinez on the show uh, a couple months back, touch on nine 11, a little, 
a little bit. I was there shortly after with the Mariners and, and we got to walk that, uh, the site and, and what a, you know, this is back kind of before cell phones and we weren't taking pictures, but man, what a, what a, it made life real for a minute. What do you remember about nine 11 in New York? Well, I remember when it happened and it was just, just, a horrifying thing and then you know we actually as a team went down to ground zero the next day and it was like a movie scene i mean it was still hissing and steaming and uh you know, almost felt embarrassed to like why are we here uh but you know to meet kids that were still waiting for their parents to see if they were dead or alive i mean the, these things were heart-wrenching just unbelievable but you saw smiles on their face when they would meet Derek Jeter or Bernie or something. So it, it, it made it worth it, but I'd never seen a city uh, change and come together um, like it did after nine 11 as horrifying as, as it was for New York and this country. Uh, by the time baseball got back, uh, it was, you know, it, it brought people together and uh, I'll still remember those playoffs and, you know, that World Series, those three World Series games that, um, you know, that's what I remember about that World Series uh, in 2001, not that we won or lost, that just those three games uh, in New York. 2014, uh, pretty, pretty darn big honor. You, you got uh, plaque of Paul O'Neill in Monument Park, one of the, the most famous parks to be in. Tell me about that day and how special it was. Yeah, I mean, that's when it all kind of sinks in, uh, you know, how cool it was. And uh, obviously a huge honor uh, when your family's out on the field and they're putting a plaque out in center field with the likes of, you know, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. I mean, you can go on. And it just um, – it was an unbelievable day. And um, I still, uh, you know, can – can remember almost every word. And I remember going up to, uh, you know, the suite afterwards and Yogi bear came in and, and greeted my family and friends that were there. And he made a point to do it. It was just, um, it was a special day for me, obviously. And for my family. And it's kind of like the, it's really when I got to thank the New York fans and say, Hey, thank you for, for treating me so well when I got to play here. And, um, you know, it, it um, I don't know how to explain it. It's, uh, it's, that's my Hall of Fame. All said and done, what are you most proud of? Well, I, I mean, the, those teams. Uh, I mean, 1998 was the best team that I have the, you know, the, the honor of playing with. I mean, that team with 125 and 50, all said and done, world championship. Um, you know, I got to fulfill the dream. I, I, I know that. But to look back and know now that, uh, you know, that people talk about that run, the great run of the Yankees in the late 90s, and to know that you're somewhat a part of that, that that's, uh, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, Paul O'Neill, I, I just want to say thank you for coming on the Boone Podcast. It was a pleasure. Uh, I've always respected you a lot from afar. It was good to, to catch up with you today on the show. Uh, what we do each and every Boone Podcast is at the end. We bring back the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dano. All right, Paul. Well, this one comes from Pete in New York, and he wants to know this. Paul, where do you keep all your World Series and All-Star rings? <laughs> They're in the house. I don't wear them. I mean, those things are pretty big. And uh, 
Uh, I tell you, every once in a while, I'll walk by a cabinet and look in there and see them. And uh, every one of them has a separate story. That's the cool thing about them. I mean, every every ring's different. And uh, every one of them has a story in itself of that season. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I don't wear them, but they look really good in a trophy case. And how hard was it? It had two home runs for Kramer on Seinfeld. <laughs> I guess. Oh, I that's what I wanted to know. Yeah, I think they gave me an air, a triple and an air. But you know what? Again, something that would never happen unless you were part of the Yankee organization. Uh, that Seinfeld thing was a lot of fun. All right. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. All right, guys. You have a good one. Mailbag. Hi, Brett. You know that sound. It's mailbag time, Dan. <laughs> that is, Brett. That it is. This one comes from Ed in Riverside. Brett, who is your biggest surprise this season? Well, there's a few There's a few teams that are really uh, surprised, surprising me a little bit. That would be the San Francisco Giants. They're hanging in there with the big boys uh, in the NL West with the Dodgers and the Padres. I don't think it'll last. But I'll tell you, I, I shouldn't be surprised at this point. But, I mean, year in and year out, I don't know how these Tampa Bay Rays keep doing it. Uh, they went into the season, you know, from last year. Uh, they allowed Morton to to uh, move on. They they traded Snell uh, to the Padres, and their big their big closer uh, went down with Tommy John right before the season. Yet you look up, uh, they're winning the division again, right up there with the best records in baseball. Year in and year out, that that Tampa Bay Rays, uh, man, they do a really good job. So those are my two early uh, surprises. You know, in this young season. All right. This one comes from Sully in Boston. What a Boston name. Brett, what is it like to hit a home run in Fenway Park? I hit my first ever there. That was my first big league homer was in Fenway Park. That's before they put the the seats in. So it was that old, you know, what what Fenway was famous for was that net in left field. Um Kind of weird because, you know, you grow up watching it on TV and you see this big wall and then you get there in person and it's the wall's not as high as you think. It's still high, but it's closer than you think it would be. I mean, it looks like when I'm standing in the box there, it looks like it's 200 feet away. And I didn't like it because, you know, my game was set up to, to hit the ball the other way. But it's so inviting when that wall's so close. You think all I got to do is flip a pop up, and it's a double. And if I get it decent, it's a home run. So uh, you know, I, I I was able to hit a few at Fenway, uh, but a home run. You know, in the end, it, it doesn't really matter. Home runs a home run. I don't care where I hit it. But uh, those are the 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 uh, the uniqueness of Fenway Park. Uh, the two things I just mentioned. Okie dokie. That is going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. We want to thank all those who send in questions via Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And, of course, on Twitter, you have already probably found Brett, but he is at the Boone 29 Facebook and Instagram, he's actually pretty receptive. You can send him messages there, too. You'll be surprised. You'll get a Boone-approved response. My name is Dan Levy. That's going to do it for the podcast. I am the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer duties are all handled by Rich Herrera. Digital content gets handled by Liz Landry. 
Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. And make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.